We begin today with a learning opportunity, and then I tell you a connection between clergy and undertakers. I share with you a bit of poetry, just to classy up the place, and I tell you how poetry class and church have maybe more in common than you might think, all on the way to answering the question, wait, is that allowed? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. I'm reading a novel right now which has a number of characters who are in the military, and multiple times in the novel, an officer speaks to the enlisted personnel and uses a word, a single word that sends a chill up the spines of the non-officers. Here's the word. The word is opportunity. The enlisted often say that when an officer tells them that we have an opportunity here, it's never a good thing. The word opportunity usually precedes a really unpleasant, miserable assignment, or worse yet, an assignment where people are going to die. The word opportunity never precedes anything fun. When I was very young and newly ordained minister in the Episcopal Church, the senior minister at my church had a similar phrase, and it wasn't anywhere near as dire as that, but it still made me wince when I heard it once I learned its true meaning. The term he would use was learning experience. When I first started working for him, he used this phrase, and I thought he was seeking out unique and rich ministry opportunities for me to experience. Pretty quickly, I discovered that learning experience meant that I had the least seniority of anyone on staff, and I was going to get this assignment because, well, nobody else wanted it. In my very first week on the job at this church, I had two learning experiences assigned to me. Now, lots of churches do funerals for their members who've died, but it's also not unusual for someone to call the church out of the blue and say something like this, Hi, I'm from out of town, and my uncle, who I never really knew, has died, and I'm the next of kin with responsibility for planning his funeral. Could you come and do a graveside service for us this Saturday? Now, these sometimes get a little weird, because you don't know the people, and you don't know what to expect. They're not bizarre, but they're sometimes a little strange, because they're just strangers to you, and sometimes you show up to something that you fully weren't expecting. Also, no one wants to do a graveside on Saturday, so often I was assigned these because I was the young guy on staff. And on this particular day, I show up to do my very first graveside service of a total stranger, and there was no one attending. Well, that's not quite fair. There were maybe three people in attendance, but the deceased must have had some money because they had obviously spent a lot of money on this graveside. They'd paid for every available option, and there were flowers everywhere, and there were way too many people, and I mean employees, from the funeral home to handle just this little bitty funeral. The guys from the funeral home, and I say guys because back then I never encountered any women, that sense has changed, the guys were all in black suits. They all had a distinctive way of moving. It was smooth, a little too smooth. They kind of glided from one place to another, and they all spoke in that soft, even voice that never varied very much in terms of inflection or energy. So they turned to the people who were gathered there, and they would say, Welcome. We are about to start the graveside service. If you would please move and take your seat under the tent. And 
And they all had the same hair. I know this seems a little bit weird, but everyone's hair was perfect. Often combed back, sometimes parted on the side, but always with a little bit more loft than the average male had in his hairstyle. And the hair was perfectly aligned. No one had that tousled look that seems to be popular today. You would not even find two hairs that crossed. Every hair seemed to lay in perfect parallel symmetry with every other hair on their head, and then it was sprayed down so that it would never move. The wind may be gusting around the gravesite, but their hair, their hair was absolutely amazingly immutable. Now, later that week, I was given another learning experience. I was assigned to represent our church at a gathering of local clergy from around the city. When I arrived, the very first thing that struck me as I entered into the room was the similarities between the clergy in the room and the men from the funeral home. Now, the suits were different, but there was a large portion of clergy who spoke in that very same way that the funeral directors spoke. It was smooth and unwavering in terms of volume and intensity. They had also, many of them, the same kind of hair. Many of the clergy had amazingly unmovable hair just like the funeral guys. They had that same kind of hairdo that left me with the impression that you could drop a brick on their head and their hair would deflect it like a helmet and probably not even be disturbed. Now, I will admit that I noticed all of this because my church tradition, the Episcopal Church, tended at this point in time not to follow this same pattern. When I was just starting my ministry, if you entered into a room of Episcopal clergy, we all tended to look slightly like the cliched image of a rumpled English teacher from a movie set in a prep school. What I discovered in the early years of my ministry was that as I encountered people in the community who initially didn't know I was a minister, they were a little thrown off by the fact that I was a minister and what they expected me to be, what they expected my demeanor to be, and what they themselves expected they would be allowed to do or be in my presence. People expected clergy to be subdued, smooth, just a little too perfect, and I think by assumption, judgmental. And by golly, you better not be caught laughing in the presence of a minister. I still run into this sometime. Sarah and I went on a boat trip this summer where we lived two weeks on a scuba boat. There were only 16 divers in total on the boat, so we got to know and meet everyone, and on about the third or fourth day, one of the couples said to me, so Dan, what did you do before you retired? And I said, well, I was a minister at an Episcopal church. They both said, oh, at the same time. They didn't say, oh, in the way like you've just discovered something really interesting. Oh, they said it in that way people do when they think they're at somebody's house for dinner only to discover that they're there to be pitched some multi-level marketing scheme. You know, you sit down to a drinks and instead of talking about the golf game that somebody had or that the new neighbor has just moved in down the street, you wind up having the person say, we want to talk to you about Amway. And you go, oh. Or maybe it's the way the class reacts in high school when the English teacher announces that for the next three or four weeks, we'll be studying poetry in our class. And everyone says, oh. It's the O oh that actually means, oh, no. And on the boat when they asked me and I said what I had done and they said, oh. I said to them as I started to laugh, I could have just told the two of you that I worked in pornography and I would have received a much more positive reaction. And they both laughed. And interestingly, neither disagreed with my assessment. 
It always disappoints me that letting other people know that you are a person of faith is not widely received as a good thing. In social settings, when people discover that I'm an ordained minister, there's often a reaction. Oh, I thought this might be a fun gathering this evening, but we have a minister here, so we need to prepare ourselves for a stiff and joyless time together. When our son was in about the ninth grade in high school, they did a module on poetry. Let's just say it was not the favorite amongst the students. They read, studied, boring, tedious, uninteresting poems only to have a teacher tell them, well, how exciting and powerful the piece was that they'd just experienced. One of the final assignments that was given to the class was that everyone would be memorizing a poem, a poem of their choosing, and then reciting it to the class. Obviously, being in high school, there were rules and guidelines that would keep people keep the kids from all selecting a haiku. You know, one of those really short Japanese poems that's just three lines consisting of five syllables, seven syllables, then five syllables. So the final day of poetry section came, and it was time for the students to recite their poem in front of the class, the poem of their own choosing. And our son's turn came, and he stepped up to the front of the class, and he just immediately started to recite his poem. And I'm going to share it with you here because... Well, it's a favorite in our household. Christopher Robin had weasels and sneezels. They bundled him into his bed. They gave him what goes for a cold in the nose and some more for a cold in the head. They wondered if weasels could turn into measles, if sneezels would turn into mumps. They examined his chest for a rash and the rest of his body for swelling and lumps. They sent for some doctors in sneezels and weasels to tell them what ought to be done. All sorts of conditions of famous physicians came hurrying round at a run. They all made a note of the state of his throat, and they asked if he suffered from thirst. They asked if the sneezels came after the weasels, or if the first sneezel came first. They said if you teasel a sneezel or weasel, a measle may easily grow. But humor or pleasel, the weasel or sneezel, the measle will certainly go. They expounded the reasons for sneezels and weasels, the manner of measles when new. They said if he freezels in drafts or in breezels, then theasels may even ensue. Christopher Robin got up in the morning. His sneezels had vanished away, and the look in his eye seemed to say to the sky, Now how to amuse them today? After Daniel finished reciting, he turned to the class and said, That was entitled Sneezels, written by A. A. Milne. The class sat in absolutely dead, stupefied silence. Then finally someone blurted out, Wait, is that allowed? Does that even count? The teacher said, of course it counts. It's a wonderful poem written by a famous author. Then the class exploded in disbelief. But, but it was funny. You never said we could do something fun or funny. Our son told us that the class finished with his fellow students unsure if they should hail him as the one who had beaten the system or stone him as the one who had carried a powerful secret that they would have liked to have known before tackling the assignment themselves. When Daniel came home and told us the story, I was... I was amazed. I was a little surprised. Why wouldn't they know that poetry can be fun? I mean, we don't think about it that way, but some of the very first books any of us ever encounter in life were funny poetry written by Dr. Seuss. The students were annoyed because they felt that something had been kept from them. And part of that was that if they had known, if they'd been told that they could do something fun, then the assignment might have been easier, more enjoyable. And that's the part that really translates to the Christian faith as well. 
Laughter is a gift from God. It's not separate from our faith journey, but should be a part of our faith journey. I remember being in our morning worship in seminary and the story of Adam and Eve was being read. They had eaten the fruit and were now in the garden hiding from God because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And as this story was read, the chapel was filled with laughter at its humor. Now, I'd never thought about it prior to that moment, but it really was funny. They now knew that they were naked and God knows what has happened and says, Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? And Adam does the oldest dodge in the book. He tries to turn the responsibility back on the person who has noticed the problem. So God says, did you eat the fruit? And Adam basically says this. Oh, it it wasn't me. It It was the woman. She gave it to me. And you, God, you gave her to me. So it's really not my fault. The implication is clear, Adam says. I think this one's on you, God, and you need to own it. And at the moment when the Bible passage was being read in seminary and Adam says to God, the woman who you gave me, everyone starts to laugh. Why did they laugh? Well, they laughed because it's natural to laugh. It's funny. The question isn't really why did the seminarians laugh, but why isn't church filled with a lot more laughter? I think the complaint of the students in the poetry class was a fair one. They should have been told that poetry can be fun, funny, whimsical, filled with joy, just as I think that's a valid complaint that many people of faith can make against their church and their clergy. They should be told the same thing about their faith. If the students in the English class had known that they could have fun with their poetry assignment, well, it would have made it not only fun, but easier. If we spent more time telling people of faith that their lives as children of God can be fun, It would make life not only more fun, but easier. The Bible, God, faith, and trying to be a good person do not need to exclude laughter and fun. Matter of fact, we should absolutely be required to proclaim those things regularly, that faith and laughter are compatible. Now, some might say, wait, 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 wait. In our church, we're focused on the plight of the poor, the oppressed. We're in the world striving for justice, and we don't have time for silly entertainment that leads to laughter. We're working for the poor, the hungry, the abused, the forgotten. We are working for justice. And by golly, I think that's a good thing. And that's exactly what Jesus would have us doing. If we're not working for justice as a part of our faith, we haven't read the scripture. But I'm going to leave you with the words of one of the truly great saints of our generation, Desmond Tutu. And he says, this is a quote from him, The chief lesson that I have learned, the texture of our universe is one where there is no question at all, but that good and laughter and justice will prevail. And notice he did not use the word or. These three things are linked by the word And they are all a matched set. There is no question at all, but that good and laughter and justice will prevail. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. That's dan at skypilot.zone. And as always, I would love to hear from you. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, 
The sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.